Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We are going to be back in 1 Corinthians this morning, so please turn to chapter 9. Um, where are my basketball fans at? Yeah? It's like three people. Anybody heard of Del Curry? Yeah, Del Curry. So Del Curry, this is my introduction. This is what I'm doing this morning, okay? Okay. Uh, Del Curry was an NBA basketball player. From 1986 to 2002, played for the Charlotte Hornets, okay? Now, Del Curry was uh, what, would, what would be considered, I guess, a role player. He's got sixth man of the, of the year at least once, I think, maybe twice. Uh, fantastic basketball player. When he retired in 2002, he had the record for the Charlotte Hornets for the most points scored, most three-pointers made as well, okay? So pretty fantastic basketball player. Um, now, as amazing of a career that he had, no one could have possibly expected that he would one day have two sons that were in the NBA as well, right? Uh, one son, Seth Curry, plays for the Brooklyn Nets, right? Great basketball player, a lot like his dad in many regards, probably a better defensive player. I'm not gonna, I don't want to get into all the details. Good basketball player. And then his other son, Steph Curry, is probably one of the greatest basketball players of all time and has, uh, is now far surpassing uh, everyone else ever in the history of the NBA in terms of three-point shots made. Fantastic basketball players. Um, now, when you hear about a family like this, uh, it seems almost obvious that there is something in the Curry DNA, don't you think? My, my vocals got real weird there all of a sudden. You hear that? Things are changing. This is the Holy Spirit. Um, it's getting even weirder. What's going on? Are you, guys, are you guys are doing something, aren't you? You got that? Where'd Jordan go? We're good? Okay, there you are. All right. You got it figured out. Um, so, so, you know, when you think about a family like this, there's lots of families like this, right? Where the, the offspring is just... There's something in the DNA that's produced athletes. And, of course, obviously in the nurturing as well. I mean, uh, if you see pictures of, of a young Seth and Steph, they're, they're courtside in the 90s with their dad hanging out with the greatest basketball players of all time, right, as little children. And there's just something intrinsic in that family and, and other families like that that pr just produce excellent athletes, but the same thing, the same exact thing is true for us. And in chapter 9 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we hear him express that he too has such an intrinsic burden. That he too has a deep-seated desire that has been pressed upon him by his father. And he can't escape it. It's a conviction. It's a passion so great that to deny it would be to deny his very identity. 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He has no choice. It's a part of his DNA. Paul was a man obsessed with preaching the gospel. 
And as children of the living God, we too should be grappling with the joyous burden that's laid upon us. That if we don't fulfill the elemental need to preach the gospel, then we are contradicting our very spiritual nature. It is who we are. To preach the gospel is to say our first name. It is who we are. Because in the gospel is the power to set souls free from darkness and from sin and to give them eternal hope in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul discusses the need to fulfill our innate calling in his letter to Colossae. In Colossians 4.16, he says, uh, he commands the church to say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it. It's our responsibility to fulfill this burden, to fulfill this job, to fulfill this requirement that's given to us to preach the gospel to everyone. And to fulfill it means that between now and the day that you die, you take your last breath, this is your primary concern. Does this make sense to everyone? Now, I know that, that, that today that there are people in the room who would not call themselves Christian. Okay, and, and maybe you, you've heard about Christ and, and you've been in church before and, and I, I don't know exactly where you're at, but by the end of today's sermon, if nothing else, I hope that you understand just how important this gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, is to all those that do believe. I, I hope by the end of today's sermon, if, if you get nothing else, you recognize that there is no greater call on any human being's life than to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and to preach it. It is who we are. And God's calling you to the same work. He, he wants you to be a part of his family as well. And so in the second half of 1 Corinthians, Paul's been teaching us that we, we should choose. We should choose to make our lives submitted to this priority of preaching. This conviction should be so great that we should be willing to make ourselves servants, servants to those that we minister to. And so today we're going to be continuing in a similar manner that we've been in uh, in chapter 9. Today's sermon is called A Disciplined Gospel. And as we continue today, our key question remains, is my personal life optimized for preaching the gospel? Is my personal life optimized for preaching the gospel? Do I care so much for my mission that I allow my life to take shape around that mission? Do I let, do I let my life conform to it in every way, in every regard? Let's pray, and then we're going to get into our text. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the time that we have together today. Uh, thank you for all of the visitors that we have here. Lord, I do pray that they would feel welcome. Uh, Lord, but I also pray that you would stretch them. And that if we're going to be opening up your word, um, it's important, uh, even right now, for us to acknowledge before you that, that Lord, that you're going to, you, you want to, and you're going to uh, say things to us that are going to, to move and shift our perspective. And uh, Lord, you might say things that challenge us, and you might say things that even seem initially to harm us, and, and, our, and, our, and our heart might hurt, and our, our intellectually, we might be challenged in a way that, that is painful. But Lord, I pray that when, when all is said and done, that you would use the healing salve of your word to draw us closer and to be conformed to your image, to be, 
to be drawn into your very nature. And so, Lord, I pray that the people that are here today, that when they leave, that they would be changed, that they would be altered, that they would be stretched, and they would be made new, uh, that they would choose to put on the garments that you've given them, and that they would deny the garments that the world has given them. And so, Lord, uh, make, us, make us like you and challenge us as it concerns preaching the gospel today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 24, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached uh, to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, as we break down this portion of scripture, we hope to uncover the features associated with the discipline of preaching the gospel. To illustrate this discipline, Paul is going to use running and racing. Um, anybody ever in track? Do, do some track, dabble in track in high school? So Paul uses this metaphor of track and field imagery, this imagery that the Greeks would have been really familiar with because of the Olympic Games, right? So uh, the Olympic Games had already been going on, I think, for millennia at this point in Greek culture and history. And so there was a long tradition of, of racing and competition. And so these, these illustrations are going to, to, to be prominent and, and obvious to them. In order to be a professional athlete or to strive for excellence in any area of life, it requires a discipline, doesn't it? A personal regimen necessary to fine-tune one's life to accomplish the feat at hand. So whether that be tennis, right, or track, or basketball, or anything you do, you have to recognize that you can't just enter into that sport just because you like it. You've got to go into it knowing that there's going to be a discipline associated with that. There's going to be a regiment, a change in life, right? There's going to be practice. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering in order to achieve the things that you want to achieve. The word discipline uses the prefix dis, which means to, to be set apart, right? means to be set apart. So the word discipline literally means to be set apart in order to take hold of knowledge or practice. That's what it means. So someone who is self-disciplining decides that they will voluntarily set themselves aside from one thing, set apart from one thing to be joined to the regimen of another. The word disciple is the term that we use to describe a person who has been set apart voluntarily for the pursuit and work of Christ. So we recognize there's a relationship between the disciple, the role of being a disciple, the choice to be identified as a disciple, and disciplines that need to be invited into our life, changes that need to be made, decisions to set ourselves apart from the past and our flesh, and to be joined unto spiritual things in God's word. Everybody get that, right? So, so now let's look at these five elements. We're going to look at five elements today of a disciplined, gospel-centered life that's laid out for us here in 1 Corinthians. Let's start with verse 24. Our very first thing we're going to look at is that we need to have an ambition, an ambition as it concerns the gospel. 
And having that ambition is the beginning of disciplining our lives to be gospel-centered and gospel-preaching individuals. Verse 24 says, Now ye uh, know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. So when discussing the discipline of sharing the gospel, we must first begin by addressing the nature of our ambitions. We must ask ourselves, what are the objectives that inform my life and my life work? What are the objectives that inform my life and my life work? What do I seek to obtain in this life? And all of us have things, don't we? Right? We could make a list of all the things that we desire in our life. Someone who's focused on their career would say, you know, I'm hoping, I am ambitious to work my way up to project manager, to, to one day be, be, you know, head of H, the HR department, one day, I desire to be CEO of my company, regional manager, right? All of us have different ambitions as it concerns our career, and that affects the way that we live and the way that we see ourselves and the way that we move forward. Someone focused on their family might say, you know, I want to have three kids. All, like, every woman in the room right now who desires to be married has a number in their mind, right, of how many kids that... Some are saying, yeah, three, four, seven, tw- 12. Some of you guys are freaks, and you're just like 12 children. Some of you, some of you have not worked through this, and you're saying none. Now, my number is zero. Okay, well. But, but you say, you know, I, I know how many kids I want to have, and I want to live in this or that neighborhood, and I want my kids to go to these kinds of schools, and you've got a picture in your mind, a picture of what you want your life to be like. Now listen, someone who's focused on running says, my objective is to win. It's to win. I desire to win. And some, someone focused on running will not be content until they start winning. And so they run and they run and, and maybe they lose. And, and then maybe they come in third place or second place But their objective and their ambition remains the same. It's to win. It's to persevere. It's to accomplish. So for a a Christian, God's mission should be our ambition. It should be our objective. Now, what is that mission? What is the mission of the Christian? Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And this is the mission right here. And ye shall be witnesses... Unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The objective that's been handed to us by Christ is to be a witness to the world, to all those that we come in contact with. Whether that be in your schools or your, 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 your job or your family or whoever it is that you come in contact with, your ambition and your objective should revolve around God's mission that's been given to you, and that's to win souls. Now, someone who thinks this way, someone that desires to be a soul winner, they're going to say to themselves, I'm hoping to lead my neighbor to Christ. Those are the kinds of things that they say. They say things like, I'm praying that God would use me to preach the gospel at my job. They say things like, I'm I'm hoping to bring my cousin to Bible study this week so they might encounter 
Jesus. I'm asking that God would remove the blinders from the eyes of the people that I love and the people that I come in contact with because I want to see them know you. But if, if these are their ambitions, and listen, their decision-making and actions will revolve around that desire. Does that make sense? Understanding the main goal is necessary in order to plan your approach to life. So we must know that our ambitions are always in danger of distraction. Do you know that? That if we say that, that our ambition in life is to preach the gospel, that, that's gonna, that there are going to be things that come in conflict with that and challenge them. So if you say to yourself, look, it's my desire uh, to get this degree and to have this job and to have this family. Along the way, you know there's going to be things that get in the way of that, right? Hurdles that you didn't anticipate. So much more is true for the person who says, I'm going to preach the gospel. Amplify, amplify those challenges times 10. Because we have an enemy that wants to prevent us from doing the things and living the ambitions that we declare. Things are going to come in conflict, conflict with that, and we are going to be distracted. And we all struggle with it. We know that God has made us to preach the gospel, but we find ourselves preoccupied with alternate routes along the way. Alternate routes that don't allow us to stick to the gospel race that's set before us. Dylan and Ashton would call these side quests. Right? They coined that... They coined that term while we were in Tampa last week, all right? So, so obviously, I was in Tampa to, t to teach, and we, there was, a, there was a, a, a Kai, their very first Kaira retreat that they ever had. They, had. they had 35 young people there, and so it was so much fun. But there was an objective that we had that week, right? And it was gospel-centered. It was discipleship-centered, right? We were there to gather people together, to encourage them, uh, to preach. Um, they had me teaching four times, and it was so much fun. And, but we had an objective, right? And you guys all know James McKelvey, right? James McKelvey is their FOI guy out there, and uh, he's got so much going on. And his job, job was to rally everyone together to be there. Now, on that very first day that we were there, um, James became obsessed with getting me um, a Cuban sandwich, <laughs> right? Because I was in Tampa, right? And so James got ob obsessed with, I had to have, I had, to, like he had the history of Cuban sandwiches. And he said, well, this region says that Cuban sandwiches originated, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like listening to him, I'm nodding my head, but I don't care at all, right? <laughs> I, like, I'm like, all right, bro, yeah. I like Cuban sandwiches. They've got those in Kansas City too. They're pretty good. I mean, it's a, it's a simple recipe, right? Some bread, some meat, right? Like what, what, what is there to this? So listen, this dude on his lunch break drives like 45 minutes out of his way to go to like the home of this one particular Cuban sandwich to get me the sandwich he holds on to it. I don't know if he left the sandwich in his car all day. I don't know what he did. But by the time he got it to me that afternoon, it was soggy. It was a little soggy. It, it. But listen, this dude was obsessed with getting me a Cuban sandwich. So after James left, Ashton and Dylan were like, this dude, this guy is a side quest guy. Right? That's the th one of the things you need to know about James is that he's always got a side quest. 
right? Like in Skyrim or these games that you play, right? So it has nothing to do with the primary narrative of the story, right? We've got a conference and a retreat to put on, and this dude's worried about Cuban sandwiches? I ate the sandwich with joy, okay? I just want to tell you that. I ate it with joy. It's a good sandwich. Don't deny that. But, but this is what we do in our spiritual life too, isn't it? That we get, we, we get so preoccupied with good things that oftentimes we have a hard time focusing on the main thing. And the main thing and the thing that God has pressed upon you and the DNA that God's given you is that you should declare the gospel. And so we get involved in ministry and we start doing these other things and, and we, you know, whether it be hospitality or children's ministry or, or, you know, campus ministry or going out and doing these things and we've got all of these side quests that may be spiritually, they may be good. They may be needful. But there's one thing that's right. And if we, if we fill our lives with Christian activity or religious activity, and we don't make preaching the gospel the primary objective, the primary ambition, then we're getting off track. We're allowing ourselves to be distracted. In the military and oftentimes in ministry, you often hear uh, pastors refer to mission creep. And that's, that's what this is. As growing leaders, your responsibilities expand and then suddenly you realize that you've lost sight of God's true objective for your life. Our gospel ministry often gets distracted by little, other little ministry side quests. We have to run in such a way that keeps the main thing the main thing. And so here's our key point. Our ambition for souls, it should, it should impact the manner of our engagement, the way in which we engage the world, the way in which we engage life. Our ambition, our goals inform the integrity of how we live the mission from moment to moment. How we organize our lives from day to day. The intentionality of what we do. Whether that be the way in which we spend time with God and his word. Whether that be the way in which we, we handle our finances. Whether that be the way in which we handle our time and organize our lives how we speak with people. This is what we're, the manner in which we engage our reality is very important to whether or not we live the objective that we set out to do. We had a soccer practice this week. Uh, Shepard, all of my kids are playing soccer now, which what that means is um, on Saturdays, I do nothing. Eva primarily, she's, not, she's like, don't get this twisted. Eva especially does nothing but soccer, soccer all day long. It's all day, right? Now, uh, this week we had soccer practice, and uh, my job was to run some running, do some running drills, okay, and get the, the, the boys uh, learning how to fight for the ball. And so we did these drills, and then we did some, some one-on-one uh, -on -one sprint races, Okay, we called them killers in high school. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but we, we ran these thing called killers. So I'm running these 11-year-old boys uh, through some drills called killers, right? Which means it's child abuse, is what I'm saying. 
But so they're running and they're giving it their all. Now it's Shepard's turn and Shepard's probably one of the faster kids on the team. Like he just is, all right? He's got a long stride. He's pretty quick. But he goes up against the other kid that's probably a little, on the team that's probably a little bit faster than him. And so they take off and it's neck and neck. It's, they're, they're going at it, okay? So they're back and forth and back and forth and, and, and the boys are cheering them on and it, okay, it's exciting. Now it's that last leg, Shepard hits that last cone and then they're on their way back and they're still neck and neck. But the problem is Shepard begins to look over at this other little boy and to consider whether or not this kid is edging him out. And so he's looking over like this. And as he he does so, his gait begins to change a little bit and his form changes and I can watch it, just the whole thing is crumbling right in front of me. Like it's like, (laughs) he was in it and then then it, it fell apart and he lost. Okay, he, ended, he didn't win. Now, this is exactly what we do. We're running in the race, and what happens is, as we're going, along the way, we get preoccupied with other things. We begin to compare ourselves among ourselves, which the Bible tells us is unwise to do. We look at our other fellow ministers and we see what they're up to and what kind of fruit is going on in that Bible study over there. And as we begin to compare ourselves, our gait begins to change, our form begins to change, and the things that we know to be true suddenly aren't being lived out. And despite what our ambition is, the distraction that we've encountered has now affected our ability to run the race well. We do this. So if a person's ambitions are right, they will focus on establishing the form and the demeanor necessary for race day. This is what we need to do. Now, this includes having a disciplined disposition. And so we've established the fact that we need the right ambitions, but we also need to have the right disposition. That's our next thing. Number two is our disposition. Verse 25 says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Every person that strives for mastery in the gospel race is temperate. Now, what is temperate? Temperate means that you exercise emotional and behavioral restraint. That's what temperate means. You, you, you exercise emotional and behavioral, behavioral restraint. Now, for an Olympic runner, they must, they must be temperate. They must show restraint all the time. Okay, so if you're an Olympic runner, you can't just eat anything you want. It doesn't matter if James has brought you a Cuban sandwich. You can't eat that because your diet has to look a certain way because you're preparing for race day. You've instilled in yourself certain restraints so that you can run the race well. A runner can't just act and behave. They can't sit all day. A runner must get out on the track and they must run. They must run drills They must work on their footwork. See, the disciple of Jesus can't just behave however they want. Their disposition must reflect their ambition. See, it's not good enough for my son to just want to be able to beat all the other kids on the team in a foot race, right? He's got to want, because of that desire, he's got to want to get out and practice running. He's got to learn that there's things associated with that. Now, as a, as a soul winner, you can't, you can't expect that you're going to be effective if you just go out there and just give it a go. Listen to me. There are restraints that we need to have in our life in order to retain what the Bible calls our testimony. 
So if the job is to be a witness, and that means we need to be a witness in every regard, both in our behavior and our lifestyle, the content of our words, but also the declaration of the gospel. So here's our next key point. Our disposition must reflect our ambition for souls. Our disposition, our temperance, it must reflect our ambition for souls. Now what Paul says is that a good soul winner in the race of life, life must be temperate in all things. Not just in some things. I mean, the, the phrase, it says in all things. This means that in every setting and every circumstance, we are to display a disposition becoming a disciple of Jesus. Okay, so let, let's, try to, let's try to get our mind around that. Okay, so for a person who desires to run a race and to be effective, an Olympic athlete. They can't just eat healthy in front of their coach. They've got to eat healthy with their friends too. And in every setting, their behavior and the content of, of their life, it needs to be consistent and needs to be seamless. See, but the problem with too many Christians is that when they're here like this, they appear to be temperate. But when they get with their friends or their family members or they're in the, in, the, in the right setting, their behavior and their disposition begin to change. Their countenance changes. And they become undisciplined in the way that they act and behave. So I wonder if that's true for us. Do you acknowledge the fact that your life is under constant scrutiny? that the lost world around you is looking to see whether or not your life matches the words that you speak? That your family members, you know, whatever they think about church, ultimately are looking to see whether or not your life reflects the fact that you're going to church and you're talking about discipleship and you're talking about the Bible and you say these things with your mouth. But does your life imitate the words that you're speaking? This is what they're looking for. This is what the lost world wants to see. Which means that your running form has to be consistent regardless of which social setting you find yourself in. Now, I'm not, I'm not thinking about any person, one person in this room, but I want to challenge everybody in here. Is the way that you behave and speak consistent no matter where you're at? Or do you allow carnality to creep in and to affect your life based on the fact that you're, you're in a situation or a setting or a circumstance that invite, invites fleshly behavior? Are you temperate? Man, you know, this is so hard because... Just even our speech alone for so many of us is so inconsistent and so many times our words even contradict the gospel itself. James 3.8 says, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. 
Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. And yet, so many of us as Christians, we, we, we declare our love for Jesus, and yet, with the same mouth, we speak hatred, and with our minds, we think evil upon other people. We're not temperate. So how do we overcome fleshly behavior like this? How do we bridle our lives? How do we bridle our emotions? And, and how do we get our, our behavior under control? Well, you can't do it in your flesh. It's not like running a race. Learning to be a track star, actually, that's easy. Because all you have to do is devote your physical time to doing that thing over and over again, time and time again, for like the rest of your life. But here's the deal. With, with behavior and the way that we act and we think, no matter how much practice, no, ma no matter how many physical disciplines we invite into our life, there's no way of overcoming it. You will always just speak evil. You're always gonna be a contradiction. See, the, the only thing that we can do to overcome is to give our lives over in surrender to Jesus. That's the only option that we have. The only option that we really have is to just give our lives over and let him take control of our lives and let him make the decisions. Romans 6.12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Okay, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. That ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, which is, that's, that's the true dynamic at play, is the yielding. What are we yielding our lives to? If we yield to sin, what will become as sin? But yield yourselves to, unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. It's grace. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that as we surrender ourselves to him, that he'll take control and he'll make something of our lives that we can't make of it ourselves. He can give us that seamless behavior. He can cause us to be, to be disciplined in our disposition. The third thing is this. Our inspiration has to be right. If we want to be soul winners, our inspiration needs to be right. So now we have an ambition which represents our divine objectives that have been handed down to us. But God is also faithful to give us inspiration. He speaks to our personal motivations. So let's, let's illustrate what I mean. Before we get into the verse, let's illustrate what I mean this way. Seth Harper is having a Smash Brothers tournament at his house. Right? This, is a very, this is a viable illustration, Right? Right? Has anybody ever been a part of a, a Smash Brothers tournament in Kaya? Okay, this is a thing that happens. If you want in on it, talk to somebody. These happen from time to time. Who, who is our best Smash Brothers? Cage. Is Cage by far? Isn't he ranked like, like internationally? He's in the top echelon of Smash Brothers players, which is actually very concerning. We should talk about this. <laughs> So let's say that Seth is having everybody over to play Smash Brothers at his place. Now, it's one thing to win. 
right? And to, and to garner the accolades of, of, of your other brethren, right? All right, whoever wins that tournament, they will, gain, they will gain the praise of men, all right? A pat on the back, perhaps. I'm guessing some Doritos are, would be involved. So there's some things to gain here. But, but, but what if, what if Seth said, whoever wins gets $500? Changes everything, doesn't it? So at first you had ambition, but now you have inspiration, <laughs> right? There's another, they've sweetened the pot. Now, God is kind enough to have sweetened the pot for us as well. So not only is this our mission and a mission of honor and a blessing from God to just be a participant in this work, just to run the race is, is glorious. But then, but then he also is willing to provide us with reward. Look at verse 25. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. That's people who run races, right? It's a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So here's our key point. Our inspiration is an incorruptible crown reserved for the disciplined soul winner. Not just anybody is allowed to have the crown associated with preaching the gospel. It is those that are disciplined in their preaching and in their behavior. And that's our inspiration. God's provided us with inspiration, reward, reward in heaven. We're not running this race to attain heaven. God has given that as a gift. But we run this race in order to receive reward when we get there. For a runner, they're inspired by the potential to receive the accolades of their countrymen, right? You can think about how much pride would be associated with, with winning in the Olympics, right, back in the day. And they would receive a laurel. You know what a laurel is, right? You've seen this, like, in Greek sculpture, like Caesar would wear. It's garland that wraps around your head like a crown. You've seen this, okay? The problem is that garland withers away. And the applause of men fade. That's just how it works. But the crown of heaven belongs to the disciplined soul winner and it is an eternal reward. It's eternal in nature. So here's the question is what inspires you? Corruptible crowns or incorruptible crowns? What inspires your life? Are you more concerned about getting the paycheck that you want or you think that you deserve or are you more concerned with souls? When you wake up in the morning, as you're getting ready to go to your job, are you, are you more concerned with whether or not you can get through the day and collect your paycheck or whether or not you're gonna preach the gospel and have opportunity with the people that you work with? When you get up in the morning and you get ready to go to school, are you more concerned about what your professor thinks of you or what grade you might get or are you concerned about whether or not you're going to have opportunity to preach the gospel? Which, what things are you most concerned about? Corruptible crowns or incorruptible? One has to take priority over the other. And I think the decision should be, if we have spiritual eyes, it should be really obvious. I prefer the incorruptible crown. Why? Because it's eternal. Simple logic, right? It's eternal. 
And I guarantee that 10 years from now, you will have no idea what your report card from undergrad says. I, I, don't, I don't remember. I think I was a B student in college. I think. I wouldn't be surprised if someone got it, got it out and said, no, you were a C plus student. Like, I, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah, B's and C's, get degrees. But my point is, is I just don't remember why. Because these things, they're corruptible. They're corruptible. What are we striving for in this life? Number four, our determination. Our determination. So by imparting Christ-like ambition and the promises of reward, the Spirit of God stirs in us a desire to become the soul winners that God wants us to be. Now, Paul is going to change his illustration here within this portion of the text. He's going to change things. So he's talking about, he's talking about track and running, but now he's going to change gears and focus on boxing, right? He's going to focus, yeah, this is a, yeah, people, this is some of the more manly men in the room. Like, yeah, that's more like it, okay? And he's going to talk about boxing. Now, boxing was popular in Paul's day as well. Now, historically, boxing is one of the most violent of all sports. And uh, I, I looked into this a little bit. Back then, the gloves that they wore, were they would wear gloves. They'd wear le leather gloves, but their fingers would be exposed, and the padding wasn't very thick. Like our modern boxing glove is, is, is much thicker, right? Uh, and so in order to not kill people when you perform this feat, when you're playing the sport, Right? But that's not the way it was. And so back in the day, it was a fairly grueling thing to be involved in is boxing. It's very, very violent, more than we understand today. It's probably a lot more like MMA fighting. Uh, but it was popular. Now, we understand that boxing requires a certain degree of toughness, doesn't it? You can't be a wimp and get involved in boxing. And most people just don't have the, the toughness to do it. I mean, I'm too old to participate in such a thing, Right? But uh, like there's a lot, like most of us in the room, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have the stomach to get into a boxing ring. In, this, in the sports of running and boxing, there is no room for uncertainty. When you do it, you've got to be about it or else you're going to get your tail whooped. I've been in enough fights in my life to know that if you hesitate at all, someone's going to take advantage of you. You've got to be into it. You've got to know why you're there. There can't be any trepidation. There can't be any second guessing. So here's our key point. Our determination is to preach despite the potential for adversity. That's what boxing brings into this conversation is that we have to be so determined to preach the gospel that despite the fact that we might get punched in the face time, from time, time to time, we are still committed to the work and we're still striving to win. Verse 26 says, did everybody get that? Our determination is to preach despite the potential for adversity. Verse 26 says, I therefore so run. So we're still, there's a transition taking place here. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. Not as uncertainly. I run this race not with uncertainty, Preaching the gospel, listen, preaching the gospel is not some empty religious exercise. There has to be a purpose. 
Preaching the gospel is kingdom ministry made alive in your life. And if it's vain to you or if it's empty or if you do it half-heartedly, it's worthless. It's not a vain exercise. We have to engage with all of our purpose. Okay, so he transitions here. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. What he's declaring here is that he's a, he's a true boxer. He's a real boxer, not a shadow boxer. If you go to a boxing gym, there are guys that always just spend their life on the, punch, uh, on the punching bag or practicing in the air, but they never make it into the sparring ring. Right? There, 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 are, there are certain guys who are, are, are about the look of being a boxer. And so there, you know what shadow boxing is, right? You're just out there and you're punching at the air. And that's fine for practice, right? You guys ever watch Mike Tyson shadow box? <laughs> I mean, it's incredible, all right? But shadow boxing was only just preparation for getting in the ring and just killing people. Do you guys know, we were talking about this uh, the other day. I don't know who I was talking to this about. But you know that Mike Tyson used to cry before he fought because he was so afraid of what he was gonna do to his opponent? There's video, no, there's video footage of him off in the corner crying before they put the hood on him and he walked out there and like literally killed people. I mean, this dude would take people's heads off. That's serious. That's some serious stuff, right? But the point here is this. We can't be pretenders. We can't, we can't be shadow boxers. We've got to be the real thing. We've got to step into the ring. But most Christians don't have the stomach for it. Most Christians are so afraid of rejection that they can never open their mouth and they never get in the ring. They talk about sharing the gospel. They're, they're cool with sitting in a setting like this and having this conversation. But when they get out into the real world, nothing changes in their behavior and they don't put the boxing gloves on and they don't get out there and open their mouth. Why? Because they're afraid of taking some licks along the way. Don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, be a Christian. And I'm telling you, the adversity is going to come. I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to suffer pain and difficulty, probably not like anything you've ever experienced before. I, you know how I know this? Because I've baptized a lot of you. And I've, and I've had the, the privilege of warning you that before you step into those baptismal tanks, that you should know that when you come out on the other side, you've made a declaration, not to just the people in the room, but to Satan and his armies, that you've chosen to be a minister of the gospel. And that puts a mark on your back. I mean, we always say it, right? That Jesus was baptized. Next chapter, he's, he's being tempted by the devil on the mount. Next chapter, You've got to know that if you choose this course of life, if you choose to go beyond shadow boxing and you decide to get in the ring, that there's difficulty waiting for you. But what else are you going to do? 
You're going to be a poser for the rest of your life? Over there pretending to do the Christian life thing? If the right person looks, you're going to at least look like a boxer? You've got the, you've got the right garb on, you've got the right shorts and the right shoes? Those boxing shorts are something else, aren't they? You could play the part. But you've got to get into the fight. Most, most Christians don't have the stomach for the rejection. They can't take a punch. But if you're inspired to win, you suddenly have the determination necessary to absorb a punch and endure the infliction because the objectives are all that you can see. It's all that you can see. You, once you learn how to take a punch, you have the ability to move past that do y'all see this video? This video, maybe I'm in, on Instagram too much. I don't know. But have you seen this video of the girl that was racing? Uh, I think she was probably a college athlete. I couldn't tell. But um, very first or second hurdle, she gets caught up and she's way by. She falls to the ground. This girl gets back up and wins the race. She just burns, torches everybody. You know why? Because the only thing that she could think about was winning. It was winning. She was determined. And I wonder if we have that kind of determination. I wonder if we have that kind of stomach for the fight. If you want to be a soul winner, it's time to train like one. It's time to think like one. It's time to have the ambitions of one. Number five, subjection. We must be under subjection. Let's look at this uh, fifth and final discipline. Verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. A body under subjection simply means that our bodies are submitted to the authority of something greater than ourselves. That's what that means. That our bodies are submitted to the authority. Authority is important here of something greater than ourselves. And in our instance, in our case, that is the living God. Are you submitted to him? Are you under his subjection? Are you under his authority? Or do you have competing authorities? Listen to what Romans 14 says, verse seven. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live... We live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. I mean, his authority, his authority dominates this life and the next. There's no place that you can go where he doesn't rule and reign. There, there is no aspect or, or compartmentalization within your life that he does not see and he does not declare authority over. Now you get, you get the choice whether or not to be a, a, a willing subject or a rebellious one. You get to decide that, but there is no place that you can go where he doesn't reign. Here's our key point. It's a long one, so be ready. Our subjection 
is the voluntary choice to preach the gospel as an act of denial to our flesh and as an act of worship to God. Two things have to happen at the same time. You have to deny who you are in the flesh, the passions of your flesh, the desires, the the things that you want in this life. You have to be willing to lay those things down and deny them and simultaneously choose to fear the Lord and put him first and worship him with everything that you do. You can't just mortify the flesh. That's not gonna get you anywhere. We already addressed that. You can't do that alone. You have to replace that denial with rulership. You might make your life void. You might put everything down at your feet, at at, at Christ's feet. But if you don't voluntarily choose to also worship him, guess what? You're just gonna fill your life with other things. You're just gonna begin to worship something else. Your flesh is very creative. We have to be subject to to Christ. And what he's called us to do is Acts chapter one, verse eight, be a witness. And you worship him when you preach the gospel. The angels might rejoice when one soul comes to know Christ, but Christ rejoice when one person obeys him. The heart of the Lord flutters when you choose to speak the name of Jesus. It's worship. Don't deny him that. Don't be afraid. There's, we have so many young disciples in the room this morning. And listen, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you above everybody else. You're entering into this, this new phase of your faith. You're learning God's word. I get it. It's exciting. But don't let the, the you know how you let these words fall to the ground? By not living them. You know, we always talk about, you know, we talk about Samuel, how he didn't let any of the words of God fall to the ground. And we imagine that that was some sort of function of his mind and his heart, right? That somehow that he was gathering God's word into his mind and his heart and he was storing it up. No, 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 listen to me. Letting God's words fall to the ground is you saying, I hear it, but I'm not going to do it. That's letting the words of God fall to the ground. This is not an issue of intellectualism. This is not an issue of zeal. This is an issue of whether or not you're going to simply obey the words that God has extended to you. Will you be a witness? Young disciples, we've got four goals of discipleship. We've got four goals. Listen to me. When we talk about ministry being a goal, I want to apologize because a lot of times we talk about ministry as a goal of discipleship, being involved in ministry, and what we mean is you should join the hospitality team. And what we say is, oh, hey, you should join the AV team. And I want to apologize for that right up front because that's that's important, but that's only half of the ministry coin. When we we talk about the goal of ministry, we are also talking about you choosing to open your mouth and preach the gospel everywhere you go. That is an obligation. It, it, it is your responsibility, and it is who you are. In closing, I want to point this out. 
Verse 27, Paul says, he keeps his body under subjection. He keeps it submitted to the authority of God. Why? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This word castaway means someone who lacks discipline and then is disqualified from the work. It alludes to someone who, in the midst of the race, they do something that disqualifies themselves from the race and they're taken out. So we've got to acknowledge that submitting ourselves to Christ and to his ambitions to reach the world, that these things, that they can be, become vain in our lives and we can disqualify ourselves. And that there are things that we can do that would, would deny God what he deserves. And we should be afraid of that. Because you have, you have one life to live. It's but a vapor, and then it's gone. You have one life to live. What are you going to do with it that has worth eternally? You can waste it, or you can make it a value. Don't be a castaway. Commit yourself to the work of the gospel. Alex, I want to invite you up, and we're going we're gonna, to um, close with a song of worship, but we're also going to do an invitation. And so before you start shutting down, okay? Just focus real quick. There are always two types of people in the room. Always. Anytime we come together, there are two types of people in the room. There is, there is obviously, there are Christians here today, and there are Christians that need to respond to this message. You need to say to yourself, self, am I running the race as a disciplined runner? Do I take soul winning seriously? And if you're a Christian here today and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you recognize that you have not prioritized the preaching of the gospel to your friends and family, coworkers, whoever it might be, and there's some, there's some fear in you that keeps you from doing it, or maybe, maybe you're just not committed to growing in your ability to do it. Okay, then this invitation's for you. You should come forward and pray with someone. But the other person that's in this room is someone who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ to begin with. And we're talking about all this stuff and we're talking about the need for us to open our mouths and to preach the gospel. So let me just briefly say, it's not good enough for me to talk about how, well, that, there goes that. It's not good enough for me to simply say it's important for Christians to preach the gospel. It's important for me to preach the gospel to you right now. If you know that in your life you have sin, if you know that there are things in your life that aren't holy, that aren't righteous, it's because that's who we are as human beings. Romans chapter five, verse 12 tells us that sin was passed upon all of us at the moment of our birth through our greatest grandfather, Adam. That all of us are sinners. And because of that, the wages of that sin is death. We deserve eternal damnation because we've offended a holy and righteous God who's only good We've offended him. We've only been rebels our whole lives. You know it's true. Whether it be lies that you've told or evil thoughts that you've thought against other people, we are corrupt in every way. Which is why Jesus Christ had to come to earth on a rescue mission. And he had to give his life. He had to be the perfect sacrifice. He had to shed his blood. 
in order for you to receive that perfect gift and let that blood cover your sins. And he rose from the dead that you might have victory and eternal life with him forever and ever and ever and ever. There is no greater love that anyone could ever have than they might, that they might lay down their life for you. And that's what Jesus did. He set the perfect example. He gave his life for you. And you get a choice, even right now. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you have a choice right now to receive it. That's why all of this is so important. This is why I get all fired up. That's what, that's what preaching is about. We want to see souls saved, and that includes you. And so don't leave today, and don't get in your car and drive away and, and set your mind on something else. Listen, Jesus Christ wants you. He loves you. He's, he's calling you. And you've, you've got to decide right now whether or not you're going to hear that and receive it or not. And there's going to be people standing up here at the front as we worship. And if, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to beg you that, that you should come forward, that you should act upon your conviction, and you should sit down with someone and ask the hard questions about life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I thank you for all these people. I'm, I'm humbled by the opportunity to open your word with them. Lord, I, I, I always feel that I don't communicate um, your word as perfectly as it deserves to be communicated. But Lord, despite that, I, I pray that you would use what was shared today from your word to convict souls. And if there are believers here that have been denying you the opportunity to use them to run the race well, Lord, I pray that they would submit their lives to you now. But even greater than that, Lord, I ask, I request of you that if there are people in this room that don't know you as Savior, that you would work on their hearts, that you would convict them, that you would show them their need for a Savior, that they would see their sin for what it is, and they choose to repent of that and call on you as Lord and Savior, and that they'd allow their lives to be changed, and that they would receive the good gift of Jesus Christ. I, I pray that you would help them, help them to make that decision. And I pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.